Hello and welcome to Page 94, the Private Eye podcast. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and this week we will be talking to Private Eye journalist Adam McQueen about phone hacking at the Mirror, which makes the shenanigans at FIFA look like the meetings of the Horton Come Studley Village Hall Association and Annual Dance Committee. But before all that, readers of the Eye may have noticed two things this week. Firstly, an increase in the font size from extremely small to very small. And secondly, a vast number more cartoons. Here are Nick Newman and Bridget Tisdall, both of Private Eye, about the process and the point of cartooning. So, cartoons in the eye, what's the point? Everybody knows that um, uh, people buy Private Eye purely for the cartoons. <laughs> Hang on, I'm not sure I want this interview to read this way. <laughs> Carry on there, Dave. Um, no, Private Eye is a great sort of potpourri of, of um, different elements and jokes and journalism, but one of the strongest elements in it right from the get-go have been the cartoons, led by Willie Rushton. Then very soon lots of refugees from Punch came on board in the very early 1960s. Michael Heath, who's still with us, Ed McLaughlin, Martin Honeysett. So the principle and the tradition of cartoons was very, very firmly rooted right from the start of the magazine. And Bridget, you're the chief cartoon wrangler, as it were. <laughs> Bridget's the most important person on the magazine because she makes sure that the cartoons go in with the captions and at the right size so that you can actually read them. Yes, and, and I, I'm the one that has to say yes or no to deliver the good or the bad news to the cartoonists. And it's really wonderful that we can put many more cartoons in as we've now gone up in size and have the opportunity to two whole pages full of just Mm. cartoons. So my job is going to be much happier because I do not (laughs) like sending lots of rejection letters. Yeah. Well, cartoons are supposedly a famously curmudgeonly bunch if you know, if we're dealing. If you draw twenty things and nineteen don't get in, that's bound to colour your view of the world, isn't it? You know. Yes, I, I think the collective noun for a cartoonist is a whinge of cartoonists. <laughs> no, no matter how many you get accepted, you you still gripe about the joke blindness of the editor who has rejected <laughs> the one that he's turned out. No, it's this is fantastic news for going up in size for the cartoonists because there are some cartoonists who just naturally fit a bigger space, like Ed McLaughlin draws on a vast scale. You know, he will draw a, a football crowd with a thousand people in it and every face will be different. Right. Uh, not just him, there are lots of other people who are very good artists like Will McPhail, very young cartoonist coming up. Ken Pine draws with great detail. And it's that, those sort of, uh, you know, some of us just whack out little scribbles and we're sort of reducing everything down. Now, hopefully... It gives the, the platform for um, cartoonists and, and to And also we'll have the opportunity to, to put in more colour as well at mm. a larger scale, which is always nice to see. Um, there are certain cartoons that really lend themselves to colour. Others you would not want to put colour with, but when you get the chance, as you say, with Moment Fell, the, their use of colour, it's a lovely showcase for that. Yeah. I remember seeing in the really old eyes there were cartoons which practically took up a full page. That may be to do with the lack of material in the, <laughs> in the magazine. OK. <laughs> we have to bear in mind people do send in beautifully drawn ideas and cartoons that we know will not reproduce to the size that we can right. in our magazine and also... Um, we're not a kind of mega glossy paper magazine. What? So <laughs> I'm trying, I'm working on it. But at the moment... Um, Yes, so we have to look at those sort of things as well when we're judging cartoons. There does seem to be a kind of qualitative difference between the the big political cartoon that you see every day in a newspaper and the kind of cartoons that the eye does more typically, these much 
smaller often they're they're completely un unmoored yeah they're not related to the day's news either they are just observations yeah. Yeah. yeah they do come in in batches of themes that occur. We've recently had loads of selfie jokes that come right. in and I'm waiting for lots of set bladder jokes to come <laughs> for this issue. And then with the Hi Honey I Home that kicked off a whole range of more cartoons. It's a bit like a red rag to a bull if you know, once there's a, a, a sort of a vein of cartoons like Hi Honey I'm Home sort of starts up everybody thinks oh I've got to get one of those yeah. in. Cartoonists love doing cliches we like doing desert islands uh, yeah. men on window ledges <laughs> lemmings <laughs> jumping over cliffs that's our sort of mental landscape and there is a sort of common denominator here generally it's all about misery and and death and yeah <laughs> um, and that sort of i think tends to be what's sort of going on inside a lot of cartoons <laughs> you're meant to be offering the light relief and i've got hundreds of pieces about people dying in hospitals and being killed in jails you're meant to be the funny bit one of my favorites is the uh, i think it's a richard jolly one of superman and Spider-Man saying to their friend, can you, sorry, can you remind us what exactly your powers are, Elephant Man? Richard Jolly is one of our, our, our um, best cartoonists at the moment. Um, he did a cartoon last year which went sort of viral on the internet, which is one of the simplest gags I've ever seen, but it was a, a picture of the National Portrait Gallery, and it's portrait shape it's in portrait, yeah. and the National Landscape Gallery. Mr. Sulu from Star Trek um, retweeted that particular <laughs> cartoon. That's real fame. <laughs> uh, do you have absolute favourites that just come to mind whenever you're asked, what about your favourite cartoon? I mean, you know, I love all our cartoonists and I, it would be invidious to single anyone out, but <laughs> I, think we, I think we all have, uh, have our, our favourites. One of my favourite McLaughlins is uh, this fantastic cartoon of giant Tyrannosaurus Rex rampaging through the city and in the foreground you've got um, the Oval Cricket Ground and the announcement over the PA saying and uh, players being suspended due to movement behind the bowler's arm. <laughs> and that, that is, is surreal and bonkers. And I don't know who did this, but there's the one of um, two guys in the foreground and they're looking in the background at this enormous cathedral which is upside down and it's resting on the ground on the points of its spire and they're both holding a map and one of them saying to the other one do you know I think you're right <laughs> and, like, it's, it's such a, an insane thing to come that's up a with. Clough, um, clough clough drawing okay. and uh, yeah he's he's brilliant at doing architectural stuff the best cartoons for me are the ones which are sort of surreal and um, uh, I'm Giles Pilbrow did a wonderful version of the Escher stairway going you know, oh, yeah, yeah, with yeah. all those sort of stairs going but he's just got somebody from health and safety at the bottom saying, I'm sorry, Mr. Escher, but you're going to have to fit disabled access. <laughs> uh, another of our, our most prolific cartoonists at the moment is, is Tony Husband. And he did this fantastic cartoon, which um, I'm very pleased to say I've got the original of, which is uh, a bloke saying um, uh, he's, he's urinating into a, into a uh, swimming pool and saying, what's the problem? You know, everybody pees in the pool, don't they? And it's just... The horrified look of the the people's faces. We're well, standing on the diving board. He's standing on the diving yeah. board. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If only there was some sort of large collection of cartoons that people could get their hands on. Can, can either of you think of anything? A couple of years ago, I edited a, a fantastic tome, and I can say that because it's full of my favourite cartoonists and favourite, especially cartoons. Newman. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of him got chosen. Uh, I seem to recall. I cut it all for lot out. <laughs> 
No, it's a fantastic book um, because it uh, it chronicles the last fifty years of private eye cartoons, and it's not just a, a laugh a minute, laugh a page compendium of mirth. It is also a sort of social um, history of, of the last fifty years because you know cartoonists like Heath chronicle the, the decades you know he's it just always amazes me how they come up with so many different ideas or takes on a certain theme and endless creativity and, and i'm always amazed each day it comes in different you know different ideas from people Bridget's a very good not. judge of whether people can draw or not and whether it matters and that varies a lot doesn't it Yes, it does. It does indeed. It, it does enhance the joke. Obviously, it's not. It's a case of getting the right combination of a decent drawing that people can appreciate with a good joke. And if you've got that winning, ca- you know, um, couple. That's do you yeah. do you think it matters whether you can draw or not? I mean, I, my my theory is that it doesn't matter if you can draw, so long as the gag is good. But you have to be able to put the gag across in a in a in a. A way that people form. enjoy and get, and I think. Hmm. How many do you get per issue, give or take? I mean, there's room for sort of twenty, thirty in the magazine. Well, I think probably about a hundred to one hundred and fifty emails, but each of those emails have about eight cartoons wow. on them. I mean, now I think we can just about we can pretty much get about forty cartoons in an issue, which is a massive amount. So. I mean, this is just today's lot that have come in. That's Jeff Thompson, who's very good, not to be confused with Robert Thompson, who's no, also very good, no, we so we won't do that. Okay. Who's that? Um, this is Cordell, and he, sends, oh, yeah. he does his also on the computer. He sends them in by email, and the colour is very bright and concise that he colours in with the computer. A lot of dogs. They're very good. He likes his dogs. Um, William Freeman, I don't know if he... Oh, he's Bestie. very good. Bestie. Yeah. He does them box, doesn't he? Yeah. Um... Stoko, very stylised. I mean, again, it's a the giant nice. McLaughlin. Mike Williams are beautiful drawings as yeah, well. Mike Williams was at yeah. school with John Lennon. Was he really? <laughs> <laughs> yes, in his. Gosh, that's rough a QI. Merrick Jones, um, again, who does draw beautifully. Yes. Um, My. Uh, impression is that there aren't nearly enough um, women cartoonists out there. Is that very few? His um, look, there's twelve. For example, there his Lamb. <laughs> Catherine Lamb, who does exquisite drawings um, and always on the button with the jokes, and Griselda, of course, and Sally Arts, and, Sally Arts, and um, no, we would like some more. And Catherine's so drawings we... are brilliant. <laughs> As editor, because they're very precise and very small. <laughs> oh, and there's Henry Davies, he draws the strips, the Miliband strip and the various new strips. God, well, I mean, that's, that's 80, that's 90 just today. One day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And each, as you say, each of these have sent in six to eight, and sometimes more. the end of the week, um, the regular sort of topical cartoonists like Ken Pine will be piling in stuff. Ken sends about sort of half a dozen a day. Would you say something like that? Morning, <laughs> evening, <laughs> night. Um, yeah, there's yeah, a lot of competition, but there is a lot more room now. Mm. If there are any budding cartoonists out there, now is our mm. now is the hour of the cartoonists. <laughs> it's our, our golden age to have this sort of platform and showcase of um, you know for pages of, of, of just devoted to cartoons is um, unparalleled in I think satirical history. Well, don't undersell it, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Nick Newman and Bridget Tisdall there. 
Now, until recently, the Mirror's policy on whether or not its journalists have been engaging in any phone hacking was very simple. In fact, a timeline of their answers to whether or not their journalists had been hacking phones would have gone something like this. No, 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 absolutely not, certainly not, never, no. Oh, wait, yes. Eight civil cases have just been resolved, with a total loss to the Mirror of just over a million pounds. In order to explain this and whatever else might be happening shortly, here is Adam McQueen of Private Eye. Hello, Adam. Hello, Andy. So, the Mirror... The Mirror. Yes. Yes. There's just been a judgment handed down. There has. About phone hacking at the Mirror. Yep. And people have been paid compensation. Between eight uh, victims of phone hacking, they've been given about £1.2 million. Yeah. What this was, essentially, was a kind of sample case, uh, just a smattering of cases, um, from what now turns out, as revealed in um, Press Gazette, a couple of days after we went to press, to be 98 cases against the Daily Mirror so far for phone hacking and uh, and illegal activity like that. This was just a sort of sample eight, which they put up front to establish what levels of compensation would be and uh, what, what how things could be managed in future. Yeah. So, yeah, this was the hearing, which you may remember went on in, in March for a few days, and we had all sorts of stories of Alan Yentob sobbing in the witness box about the appalling intrusion into his private life, which resulted in absolutely no stories in any of the Mirror titles because all of his messages turned out to be so boring. Uh, but also, it was Shobna Galati from uh, Coronation Street. It was a guy called Robert Ashworth, whose real claim to fame was that he used to be married to another Coronation Street actress, uh, Tracy Shaw. It was Shane Ritchie and Lucy Benjamin, from both from EastEnders, Sadie Frost and Gazza. The funny thing about all of these cases, both the News of the World ones and the Mirror ones, is they're kind of a, a tour of, uh, they remind you of exactly who was famous. The big names are sort of 2003 yeah. to four kind of thing, who've now, some of them slightly, slightly faded away from consciousness, but they're kind of hurtling back into the headlines with all this kind of thing. <laughs> so with these eight cases, it was essentially a test to find out what the right level is of compensation and also to establish the guilt of the company, or had that already been established? Well, this was kind of what was partially established at this hearing. Trinity Mirror, after years and years of, of saying, no, 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 there's no evidence that any phone hacking went on whatsoever, suddenly you turned on this very recently, back uh, last autumn, and said, all right, there may be some phone hacking going on on some of our titles. At which point, Mr Justice Mann, who was the judge in charge of this case, sort of sent them back with a flea in the rear saying, OK, well, I want to know exactly what, how much phone hacking went on and on what titles. Because Trinity Mirror, of course, publishes both the Daily Mirror, the Sunday Mirror, and the Sunday People yeah. as well. And essentially, in this judgment, the judge gets incredibly cross because the Mirror Group went away and, and failed to come back with that information. They, they still came back and were incredibly vague. They said it would be impossible and irrelevant to establish the scale of wrongdoing or to be specific about it. As with many serial killers, when you say exactly how many people yeah. have you killed, yeah. they say, well, I'm guilty of doing it. I'm not going to tell it you. matter? <laughs> Let's not get bogged down in the details. That's essentially what they were saying, yeah. And it was left to the judge to uh, come up with what is actually contained in, in the kind of last few pages of this epic judgment. 195 pages. Wow. Which I, I waded through last week. And he actually gives you a breakdown of all of the stories that appeared in okay. those three titles uh, which would not have appeared had it not been for unlawful activity. And it specifies which papers they were on. And for the first time, we know for certain that 25 of them, just out of these eight sample cases, so that's by that's you know tip of the iceberg kind of thing. So 25 stories 25 from stories these eight sample cases. From the Daily Mirror appeared due to unlawful activity during the reign of the then editor, Piers Morgan. Okay. Which has been something we've not known until this point. And so. he has been very cagey about this. He has been caged. He continues to be cagey. He's yeah. been interviewed under police caution, and uh, we do know that there are a decision is pending about criminal, possible criminal charges against um, people at the uh, Mirror Group. 
Uh, so we, 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 we should probably steer clear of saying yeah. too, many, too many things about too many names of, yeah. of anyone and just sit tight and wait. <laughs> and as yet, as yet, there have been no criminal charges. This is a civil settlement. Basically, this yeah. is history repeating. This is exactly what happened with the News of the World. And the amazing gobsmacking thing is that the Mirror Group did not learn from the disaster that engulfed the News of the World and resulted in them having to close down their paper. But they tried to play it in exactly the same way. So there were a series of civil cases... Uh, so people suing in the civil courts for the intrusion into their privacy. And there have been payouts, haven't there, before... Now. They have been. Various people yeah. were paid off ahead of these hearings. So um, names like uh, Christopher Eccleston, the former Doctor Who, Gary Flickcroft, the footballer, Sven Goran Eriksson as well, who, yeah. who famously, if you remember, there was that story in the mirror about his um, affair with Ulrika Johnson, yes. which, which the eye raised an awful lot of questions about along the way. And then, curiously, he was paid off with quite a lot of money from the mirror group ahead of, uh, ahead of having his day in court to hear all about that. Now, the problem that the mirror group had is that they then couldn't persuade everyone to accept a settlement ahead of court, which is where the news of the world, with their much deeper pockets, did much better because this was the same thing that was going to happen with the news of the world. There was going to be a big civil test case to find out what compensation was due to people there. But they just kept paying everyone off. They just kept throwing the money at the problem until it went away. Well, at least they thought it had gone away. But at that point, the police investigation was reopened and there started being criminal charges. So with this, with the mirror, we are now at the stage of these civil test cases. Yeah. But the police investigation into the mirror is... Is ongoing. Is ongoing. Well, a file is, I think, with the Crown Prosecution Service uh, as we speak. There were a number of arrests, which um, listeners might remember, way back in kind of the winter of 2013. Okay. Um, Did those result in any charges? Not yet. How, how far exactly back does this go? Because it was all turn of the century, the start of phone hacking. Well, actually, yeah. The interesting thing about this judgment, the the earliest admitted case was back in 1999. But the bulk of them are from sort of 2002, 3, 4 kind of time. Uh, The really interesting thing in the judgment is that they fell off a cliff, basically, um, in 2006, which is when the original arrest for phone hacking happened at the News of the World. So way before the Millie Dowler revelations, you'll remember that um, Clive Goodman, who was their royal correspondent and their in-house phone hacker, effectively, Glenn Mulcair, were arrested. And there's evidence, which was put to the court in this particular case, of thousands, literally thousands of phone calls being made to the Orange platform, which was this way you could, if you if you had an Orange mobile phone in those days, you yeah. could phone into this Orange platform and you could access your messages from something other than your mobile phone. Okay, yeah. Which very few actual uh, people who owned Orange mobile phones knew about or used, but an awful lot of tabloid journalists seem to have known about and yeah. exploited a great deal every day. So literally thousands of calls being made, which just stopped on the day that people were arrested at the News of the World, and everyone kind of went, um, phone hacking, it's got to stop now. And that was just one mobile phone platform? That was one mobile so phone platform. Were, that's just Orange, there were lots of and other phone And that is just phone calls that were being made to that particular platform from the landlines in the offices that were shared by the people, the Sunday Mirror and the Daily Mirror. Okay. Now, the testimony of a couple of whistleblowers, one, one whistleblower in particular, Dan Evans, who was a journalist on the Sunday Mirror, also worked on the News of the World. And that's the other fascinating thing about this, is quite how many people swapped between the two newspapers. Right. But yeah, Dan Evans' evidence was that most of the phone hacking that was done was done on these burner phones, you know, like they have in The Wire, oh, yeah, or like yeah. The Guardian set themselves up with when they were doing the Edward <laughs> Snow because they, they wanted to pretend they were in The Wire. So um, these, are, these are unregistered mobile phones that you buy from a supermarket or whatever, and you, right. you click in, you listen to people's messages. And then Dan Evans' testimony was that he'd actually thrown them into the Thames near, near the Canary okay. Wharf offices of the uh, Mirror. And, and the police, amazingly, the Met actually spent quite a bit of money sending divers down to see if they could find any of these phones. Did they? <laughs> Curiously, no. You threw something into the Thames in sort of 2002 kind of time, it, it's, it's probably not going to be there anymore. So, Maybe one day, yeah. marine archaeologists will retrieve a mobile from the Thames and it will have a Alan load of, of Alan Yentob's incredibly boring voicemails on it. We can look forward to this.
From 2006 onwards, there was an absolute flat denial that any anything of the sort had been going on any anywhere other than the news of the world, yeah. which was treated with a lot of scepticism. I, I was thinking back to this um, this week, actually. I remember back in 2011, so it was my very good book, uh, Private Eye, The First 50 Years <laughs> A to Z, which is incidentally still available in all good bookshops, came out. Ian Hislop and I did an event down at the Cheltenham Book Festival, and mm. uh, we sort of had questions from the audience. And the first question was, do you think the phone hacking scandal will spread to any other newspapers, specifically the Mirror. Right. And I remember saying to, uh, to Ian, and it was one of my, my, my rarest sort of Cassandra moments, I, I said, the problem is that although I'm certain it was going on at other newspaper groups, yeah. I'm sure there was a massive, basic bonfire of everything on the day that, that, um, that, that Clive Gooden and Glenn Mulcair yeah. were arrested. And I'm sure all of that other evidence is long gone, either to the bottom of the Thames or burnt on people's allotments. And actually, the nice thing is that was actually uh, confirmed in Justice Man's judgment, where he said that working on the, the evidence of the whistleblower, Dan Evans, he said that he was very, very uh, dubious that any of the evidence of this stuff, the actual paperwork yeah. that related to it, still existed. He said, um, the hunt for information and documents would be very, very difficult and very arguably impossible to achieve to any reasonable degree. Mr. Evans described a process which was designed not to leave any documentary trace. The attempts at hiding were not always successful, as the disclosed documents reveal, but it would have had to have been unsuccessful on a grand scale for there to exist the sort of information that the claimants now require in order to provide the full picture they need. So effectively, Mm. we're never going to know. But what was really interesting about this was the the Trinity Mirror defence, or lack of a defence really, they basically didn't 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 put one up. They, they, right. There were a very few um, stories within these within these test cases where they said no 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 that one wasn't from phone hacking, but but admitted all the others. Was the evidence simply this story appeared in the Mirror or the Sunday Mirror or the People? This could only have been known about by phone hacking. It was that the the claimants put forward stories that they said could only have come from phone hacking. Okay. Uh, so in a lot of cases, it was from specific uh, phone messages they could recall leaving for members of close family and things, and the information would then turn up. It was information that they felt yeah. could have been gleaned from nowhere else. Because there's always, presumably, someone on the other end of the message who might have given the story to the Mirror or the people. There is, yeah, and that was some of the saddest stuff in, in the evidence, was that an awful lot of these people assumed that the members of their family, or the people they were actually talking to and leaving phone messages for, were selling information on Gaza, to the papers. Gaza said something about this, didn't Yeah, they? and that's, I mean, that, that's the saddest thing. I mean, in a way, one of the unluckiest things for the Mirror was the selection of the cases for this, because I mean, a, lot of, a lot of this phone hacking stuff was just for crappy pieces of celebrity gossip right. um, I mean just just nothing at all but actually in the cases of, um, of Tracy Shaw and her husband and in the case of Sadie Frost it was about really messy breakdowns of marriages one of those cases involving you know anorexia and rehab and alcoholism and certainly with Gaza it's you know yes. this great national hero who descended into the into this fairly awful state and, and, and was helped along the way really by this increasing paranoia that everything he said to anyone seemed to end up yeah. in the papers uh, and he gave some very heart-rending testimony about that Trinity Mirror were given the chance to put in specific pleadings against all of these uh, accusations and say no no that didn't come from phone hacking and in most cases they just failed to enter pleadings for them so effectively without actually having to say yes we're guilty they were admitting to okay failing to oppose it's worth just reminding ourselves of how it all came to light initially which was with the news of the world it wasn't with the Millie Doubtler it was with the royal phone hacking. It was, yes, it was initially, it was a column which um, Clive Goodman wrote called the Blackadder column, which was a royal gossip column. Um, And he made the mistake, um, I mean, as we now know, um, phone hacking was done on an enormous sort of industrial scale by by all sorts of people at the uh, the News of the World. Yeah. 
And in a way, they got lazy. Clive Goodman certainly got lazy and started failing to disguise the provenance of things that came from phone hacking. Um, So literally, stories were going in saying, oh, Prince Harry's left this amusing um, message for William where he pretends to be Chelsea Davy and puts on a South African accent. Right. So it's not really covering your tracks at that point, is it? And the real killer one was that he, um, he put a story in about how Tom Bradby who is, at that point, was the ITN uh, royal editor, who now, now presents, presents that politics show for, yeah. for, for ITV, had lent some video equipment to uh, Prince William. And the right. only people who knew about this were Prince William and Tom Bradby. Yeah. And the only place it could have possibly come from was, was, was a voicemail message between them. So that was the point at which someone at, someone at the palace twigged and, yeah. and got on to the police. And obviously, it being royal security, that's, um, that's taken slightly more seriously yeah. by the police, or was at that point, than... Uh, than kind of um, uh, C-list celebs or anything. Yeah. So that, that, that was what kicked that particular... So from that point, from, from that story almost, where the police were first notified that someone has been looking at the private phone messages of the princes... And of the staff, yeah. Everything has come from that, in a way. The whole revelation... Well, yeah, but it took its time, because of course yeah. you've, then, you've then got four or five years where the, uh, where the Met Police do everything in their power not to look too hard at all of this stuff and bags of evidence from the News of the World sit in, um, in New Scotland Yard without being looked at uh, until you get the revelations, Nick Davis's revelations about Millie Dowler's messages being hacked into and the police investigation is reopened and kind of all hell breaks loose. Why was the police investigation so lacklustre in the first years, would you say? Uh, I mean, I think there were specific relationships between senior police officers mm. and people at News International. But I think also there was what became really apparent in the Leveson inquiry, which has now been turned into this just question of whether the, the press should be governed by a royal charter, was that yeah. there was an extraordinary nexus of corrupt or very easily corruptible power between politicians and senior police and senior members of, um, of, yeah. of media companies, in particular in that case News International. And these kind of revolving doors between them, whereby very senior police officers would be given would retire early and then be given lucrative columnist jobs with News International, or yeah. senior News International executives would go on to jobs doing PR for the Met. And, yes. and, and you know, the, the, the Prime Minister and, um, and Rebecca Brooks were in and out of each other's houses for kitchen suppers in the Cotswolds and all sorts. And that, that, that sort of thing has now been subsumed by people just being outraged about the tabloids. And um, yeah. it's a curious one, because I think, I think that in many ways that was, that was where the bigger scandal lay. Yeah, and the focus obviously, and rightly, is on the press in that, but it, it doesn't really take into account the other two sides of the triangle. Mm, exactly, yeah. exactly. I mean, Leveson made very yeah. few recommendations about, um, about the police. <laughs> How to improve and the government. basically yeah. none about politics. Um, yeah. And the ones he made about the police, actually, uh, were largely, have largely scared policemen off talking to, or police officers off talking to journalists at all, which has done to everyone a disservice, because yeah. it means that... Well, now lots of police can't even talk to journalists without declaring it in writing. Even yeah. if, you know yeah, if you know a journalist socially as a police officer, you, you, you're basically not allowed to anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're completely paranoid about it. And, and yeah. unsurprisingly so. I mean, the last time we talked for one of these podcasts, it was about all of the, uh, yeah. the uh, public officials, including police officers, who were being facing criminal charges for, 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 for talking to journalists without authorisation. And, um, and, you know, there is, there is a useful relationship. There always has been. I mean, what's one of the longest running shows on, on, on the BBC is Crime Watch, isn't it? Which is yeah. a case of the, the police working with the media in order to, um, to, to, to help solve cases. So there was always that useful relationship, uh, which, you know, babies being thrown out with bathwater is maybe, yeah. maybe going there. 
it was amazing in a way. The mirror, as you said in the piece in this week's magazine, um, the mirror basically entered a defence which said the defendant did not know and could not establish the extent of the unlawful activities. I mean, <laughs> to that, say, that's the way they've been going all the time. I mean, their yeah. initial reaction back in July 2011, so right at the height of you know all of the the scandal and the news of the world being closed down and things. Um, Trinity Mirror's reaction was to launch a review of editorial controls and procedures, which basically, it then turned out, consisted of um, Paul Vickers, their head of legal. He called the, the, the editors of all three papers into his office and said, um, basically asked them, do you hack phones? Um, right. And they all said, unsurprisingly, because no one was hacking phones by 2011, because it had been known it was illegal and you'd get arrested for it for, for, uh, for five years by that point. Yeah. That gave him the ammunition to, to put out this, this really weird sort of present tense statement, which was, our journalists work within the Criminal Law and the Press Complaints Commission Code of Conduct. And that was it. That was it in terms of the investigation. Now, as, it, as investigations go, it's not even, it's not even yeah. the, um, when did you stop beating your wife question, is it? It's kind of... Um, what is it? What, are, it's actually, it's, you can you confirm your... you're not beating your wife right now in this meeting? Yeah. <laughs> okay, brilliant, right. This is all only now unravelling in a series of cases. And indeed, for the news of the world, obviously, has killed off the news of the world. And is now, we're nowhere near that stage yet with the mirror titles. Because there are now 98 Almost a hundred more cases. Which yeah, are and with compensation set at a level like one point two million for eight cases. Yeah, you can do the maths. You're probably better at maths than me. I only write the number crunching column. <laughs> but it's a hell of a lot of money they're looking at paying out. Now, yeah. initially, Trinity Mirror put aside four million. They put that up to eight million, and I think it's now gone up to twelve million or something like that. Well, okay. that's that's going to be if, if if everyone is. They are appealing. We should say this this, this judgment. Okay, but. Um, but if, if, if the compensation levels for all of those other uh, uh, um, all, all of those other claimants are at that sort of level, yeah. taking enormous amounts of money, and Trinity Mirror is not a company on the same scale as as News Corp, the owners yeah. of the News of the World. Um, I mean, in, even in that case, News Corp is worth about ten billion. Um, but but a lot of the money for covering this the the, the, the phone hacking scandal and the ramifications of that there is coming yeah. from Twentieth Century Fox, which is Murdoch's other business, which is worth seventy four billion. So I mean, we're talking mm. enormous amounts of money. Well, Trinity Mirror's market capitalization is about four hundred and sixty million. It's it's a minnow compared to that. So okay, if they've got a if they've got to hand out money uh, hand over fist at, at, at this kind of level, then um, we're yeah. looking at some serious trouble ahead. And do you think that once these cases, these ninety eight more, have all wound their way? through the legal system, the press would be able just to move on from phone hacking. Well, this is the funny thing about it. The, the press have moved on from phone hacking. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the evidence in this judgment is that at the mirror, everyone freaked out and stopped as mm. soon as the first arrest happened with phone hacking. And I think that's true wherever it was going on across the industry. I right. think people just suddenly went, this was the golden goose that kept on giving for a while, but now it's just over. Yeah. Uh, and we can't do that. And the press are being incredibly careful now and taking much, much more seriously the idea of intruding into people's privacy and, and where the line lies. And that that's not just because of it. It's because of the Leveson inquiry and it's because of the Max Mosley payout and things like that. And part yeah. of that is, is, is the reason that the tabloids are so bloody boring these days. <laughs> I mean, have you seen The Sun on Sunday recently? It's the most tediously sort of um, mellow paper compared with the news of the world in its kind of rip-roaringly awful days and mm. um, you know as a as a nostalgic hack I, I, I kind of miss it a bit Adam McQueen there well, that's all for this week's Page 94. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please do buy subscriptions to the magazine for 30 or 40 of your closest friends. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time, and goodbye.